having conquered nations, kings, idol worshipers of all kinds, King David faced yet one more foe at the end of his life. He had to face himself. Out of chest-swelling hubris, David ordered his general Joab to number all of the Israelite soldiers in the land. With great reservation, Joab did as the king commanded. And as he was coming back to report to the king the number of Israeli soldiers under his command, the Holy Spirit convicted David of his sin. David repented of his sin, but saying, I'm sorry, does not necessarily take away the consequences of our sin. As was here, was true in this case as well. And the Lord said to David, you have one of three choices. Either I will send seven years of play, uh, of famine upon the land, or you will run for your life for three months, or I will send a plague upon the land for three days. What will you choose? David threw himself on the mercies of the Lord and said, I choose three days of plague. And within hours, 70,000 of David's soldiers lay dead. At the command of the Lord, David went to a man by the name of Arana, otherwise known as Oran in Scripture. And he said to this Jebusite, that is, he was a dweller of the ancient city of Jerusalem, I want to buy your land. Arana was the farmer at the top of Mount Moriah the site where Abraham prepared his son to be slain at the Lord's command. The Lord had other things in mind. He was testing Abraham. But it was on that site. And in 2 Samuel, chapter 24, we read... Arana's response to the king. Verse 20 of 2 Kings chapter 24. Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Arana went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. He said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. 
Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes for the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Arana, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Worship that costs you nothing is worth nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the yoke of the oxen. He bought the oxen. He bought it all. And he offered it to the Lord. And the Lord accepted his worship and stilled the hand of the angel that brought the plague to the Israelite soldiers. There are some that would say that extravagant worship is inappropriate. Um, it's not wise to, uh, to, to give the very best. Accept the gift that is given you, David. David understood that if you don't invest in something, you are not owning it. It's not true worship. It's something secondary. This morning we are in the 12th chapter of John's Gospel. The 12th chapter begins a new section in the 4th Gospel. We call John's Gospel the, the, the supplementary Gospel, in contrast to the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic meaning the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are uh, very, very close uh, compatible with one another. They, they talk about the same events oftentimes. John's gospel is different. Forty percent of his gospel record deals with just the last week of Jesus' life. Chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 all deal with the last week of Jesus' life. We find some unique material here in this section of John's Gospel. Most notably, what we call the Upper Room Discourse in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And, uh, and Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Glorious pieces of revelation for us to enjoy. Chapter 12 begins this week with an outlandish, seemingly over-the-top act of worship on the part of Mary, Martha and Lazarus's sister. 
Now, before we look at the text uh, this morning, no, let's no, let's not do that. Let's read the text first, and then I'll make some other comments outside of the text. John, John chapter 12. Follow along with me as I begin at verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there, and and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. All four gospel records record an anointing of Jesus in this manner. Now, Matthew and Mark, chapters 26 and 14 respectively, include so many similar details that we can very, very confidently say that that is the same event, the same anointing. In Luke chapter 7, we find uh, another anointing, a different anointing. Um, It it, it takes place in a different place at a different time in Jesus' ministry. Uh, There's a different conversation that takes place there. And there's a different person doing the anointing. Now, neither... Matthew, Mark, nor Luke identify who is the anointing one. Tradition tells us that it is Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 7 who anoints Jesus' feet. You'll remember that when Jesus came into the home of the Pharisee where he was invited for dinner in Luke chapter 7, uh, (coughs) excuse me, the... uh, (coughs) The Pharisee did not wash the feet of his guests. So this woman, who is unidentified in, John, in, in Luke's gospel, this woman comes up and with her tears, she washes his feet, wipes his feet with her hair, and then anoints his feet with perfume. 
Tradition tells us that this is Mary Magdalene, um, the woman that Jesus rescued and delivered. This was uh, an, an act of, of remorse, of thanksgiving, of, of worship on her part. Now, Matthew and Mark do not identify the individual that's anointing Jesus' feet on that occasion. But there are so many similar uh, details compared with John chapter 12 that we can very confidently say that the individual anointing Jesus' feet in John 12 is the same one that we find in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. None other than Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, Matthew and Mark both include this particular event after the triumphal entry. John includes it before the triumphal entry. John's careful to give us some, some, some time markers to know when this took place. And Mark and, and Luke, neither of uh, Mark, Matthew and, and Mark, neither of which uh, give us any time markers at all. So it's 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 easy for us to 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 think that John's record uh, gives us accurate timing. Matthew and Mark are not being dishonest by including it after the. Um, the triumphal entry, their purpose was different. They include this event in order to connect Judas with his act of betrayal. I've included, or, or rather, I, I have uh, divided this, uh, this section into, into four, uh, looking at the, at the primary players in each section. Mary then Judas, then Jesus, then the chief priests. Mary, an unconstrained act of worship. Judas, a strident word of protest. Jesus, a corrective word of rebuke. And the chief priests, a premeditated plan to murder. Verse 1 of chapter 12 sets the scene. You remember from our uh, last look into John's gospel in chapter, at the end of chapter 11, that Jesus went to um, Ephraim, uh, incognito, if you will, to get away from the religious leaders. They had made the decision. They were in a hunt for Jesus. They were going to put him to death. And Jesus uh, left. His time was not yet at hand. So he went to Ephraim, but now it was time for him to go back to the area of Jerusalem, specifically to Bethany, where he stayed during the feast. Uh, this was a week-long feast, um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, one of the three feasts that were required for the Jews to attend, Jewish males. Um, uh, sometimes it's, it's called Passover, but Technically speaking, Passover was, was the last day of the feast. So Jesus, uh, six days before the Passover, he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. 
You'll notice in verse 1 and again in verse 10, John reminds his readers that this is Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. He wants to keep that front and center of our thinking. This Lazarus was dead. Jesus raised him. This is the guy. Verse 2, so they made him a supper as he came. Mary was, Martha was serving, not a surprise. We, we know that of her. She is a hospitality queen. Lazarus was there. He was reclining at table with, with Jesus. Verse 3, now the middle child gets attention. It's Mary. She takes, verse 3, a pound of very costly perfume, of pure nard. She anoints the feet of Jesus wipes his feet with her hair, and the house is filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now a pound of this perfume was the equivalent of 12 ounces in Roman measure. Um, Matthew and Mark note that this perfume is in an alabaster vial. So think about a, 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 a vase, a, uh, a bottle of perfume that is sealed. He breaks the seal. He, or she rather, uh, uh, whacks off the top of it. So, somehow she opens it. It's 12 ounces of of, uh, of fluid. Um, it, it's, um, it's, it's called pure nard in our text. Uh, nard, and sometimes it's called spike nard, is the oil from a particular plant that is crushed. The oil is what, what comes out of the crushing and it's placed in a bottle. Now, um, this particular plant is related to honeysuckle, and it's native to the Himalaya mountains. So it came from Nepal, China, India, that area. That it is identified here as pure nard means that it's uncut. This is imported, uncut, extremely expensive perfume. This is the best of the best. And you might wonder, how did this woman come into possession of this, this vial, this, this, this jar of perfume? Uh, was it given to her as a present? Um, did she purchase it with her own money? Did she purchase it for herself? Did she purchase it for an occasion just like this? We don't know. All those questions, though we're curious and we're interested to know the answer, uh, those are secondary. The primary thing is, she, uh, Mary intentionally, purposefully, gave this to Jesus. She gave all of it to Jesus. Matthew and Mark tell us that 
with this perfume, Mary anointed the head of Jesus. In both Gospels, Jesus says that that she anointed his body. Here in John, we find out that she anointed his feet. Is this a contradiction? No. They are very complementary. In other words, Jesus' head, Jesus' body, Jesus' feet, all of him was anointed. She poured the whole bottle out. Anointing Jesus. She wiped the excess as it dripped down his body from his head onto his feet. She, dripped, she, she wiped the excess off with her hair. Now that by itself is rather astonishing. A Jewish woman of integrity and more a character would always have her hair tied up and it was always be covered. But on this occasion, publicly, Mary took off her head covering and she loosed her hair and she wiped the excess off of Jesus' feet. That by itself is a display of vulnerability and humility. Mary didn't care what other people thought of her. Mary didn't care about the potential uh, cost of her reputation. She didn't care about the cost financially of what this meant for her to open up this, this vial of perfume and pour it on Jesus. This was her display of worship. Extravagant worship. Normal worship. Where Jesus gets it all. Could Mary... Could Mary have worshipped Jesus, expressed her joy, her thanksgiving, her honor of who he is and what he was about? Could she have worshipped Jesus by pouring out just half of that bottle and putting the rest aside? Sure. Could Mary have worshipped Jesus by kneeling at his feet, taking the form, uh, taking the, the, um, the, the physical form of a, of a slave and kept that vial of perfume in her bedroom on the dresser? Absolutely. 
She could have worshipped Jesus that way, but she didn't. She gave everything she had to the Lord. That's the point that we must take in. At great cost to herself. But the cost wasn't something that she was concerned about. She was so focused on displaying her love, her affection, her thanksgiving, her worship on Jesus, that all of that went away. And she was completely unconcerned about it. This is a display of the, of the fullness of her devotion. Second page of your notes. And then there's Judas. Verse 4 reads this way. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, Dot, dot, dot. In the New American Standard Translation, it begins with the, uh, the adversative, uh, a but. Uh, in, in, the, in the Greek language, the word is literally therefore. And, and John is, is, is painting with words a connection between Mary's choice to worship Jesus full out with um, Judas's response, which is an opposite, which is why they translate it but. John is, is seeking to move the narrative from those who are worshiping Jesus to those who are in um, uh, in, a, in an oppositional, uh, antagonistic framework against Jesus. This is the second time in John's Gospel that we find this mention. And he's, he's, always, uh, he, he's always referred to as, as the man from Kiriath, Iscariot, that's what it means. It, it, it gives him a place as opposed to the other Judas that was among Jesus' disciples. So we're, we're talking about the man from Kiriath, that Judas, that one who is one of his disciples intending to betray him. That's how John reports who this man is. He's a disciple. He's intending to betray Jesus. Now that's important. And John wants us to, to make sure that we have that in, in our, our, our knowledge and our, our, our memory, our understanding of, of, of Jesus, Judas. First of all, he is one of the twelve. He's, he's not a, some concert groupie that comes and goes, that's kind of interested, hangs around with, with, uh, with, with the, the guy on stage. No, this is one who has been specifically chosen by Jesus. Oh, but from all the other things that we know of Jesus, he specifically chose him with full knowledge that this is the one who would betray him. 
Judas was fully known and ordained of God to be the betrayer. Judas is still fully responsible for his choices. Here we find that tension of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty in one person. Here's his protest, verse 5. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Taken by itself, out of context? We would, um, we would think that Judas's, um, uh, he, he's, the, he's the social activist um, we, we, we want to see. We, we, we love people that, that care for the, the, the down and out, the, the people that are poor, the people that are needy. Shouldn't we stand up and, and applaud such a person? He also appears to be a, a perfumer pro. He instantly knows, looking at this um, alabaster vial of pure nard, he immediately knows its value. 300 denarii. That's a year's salary, my friends. What's an average your salary. Well, it's the, depending on who you're asking, what, what, what um, area of work you're, you're, you're looking at, you're going to find oh, a, a wide variety of numbers. Let's, let's just say that this, this is somewhere between fifty and $70,000. Whoa. That is one expensive bottle of perfume. Are you kidding Fifty to seventy thousand dollars. So Judas stands up in, in, in protest. Wait, 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 wait! Why wasn't this given, sold, and given the money given to the poor? That would have helped a lot of families. You know, it's a little insidious at this point is what Judas doesn't say, but he implies. He implies that um, Jesus is, is, is not concerned for the poor. Else he would have stopped this madness. Had her sell the perfume and given it to the poor. He, he implies um, that, that Mary's deed is, is an expression of wasteful spending. Especially spending that benefits only Jesus. But Judas is implying that he is of greater moral character than Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? But we do have context to understand his protest in verse 5. And that comes in the next verse. John, by revelation of the Holy Spirit, 
gives us this commentary, this insight into the man's motivations. Verse 6. Now, he said this, Judas said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was in it. You remember from uh, previous studies, Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, handpicked by Jesus, was formerly an IRS tax agent. This man knew accounting. He knew how to keep a spreadsheet. He knew how to balance the books. Matthew would have been maybe the, the, the logical choice to be the treasurer for Jesus' um, men. No-brainer. Yeah. We don't know how, but Judas came to be the treasurer. Was it because he volunteered? Did he have a skill set maybe that was similar to that of Matthew's? We're not told. All we're told is he was the guy with the money box. When a gift was given to Jesus for his ministry, for that of his men, possibly, it was placed in Judas's care. And then as needs came up, Judas was the one who took from that money box and paid the bills. So for him to see this ginormous gift of an alabaster vase of the, maybe not the most expensive, but very expensive perfume, to simply be poured out. He's thinking, I am just walking away from having my fingers on fifty to seventy thousand dollars. What an offering that would have been that morning, right? And he couldn't have any of it. That's why he was perturbed. That's why he was in protest. He wanted that money not for the poor. He wanted that money in the ta- in the in the in the in the money box so that he could in the words of Leon Morris, be a sneak thief. And as he took out a dollar to give, he could take out one for himself and put it in his pocket. Jesus responds, point number three. Verse seven, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now Mary did not do what she did in order to get. She had no intention of receiving anything. But look what the scriptures say about what she did receive. Looking at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Uh, verse 13. 
Matthew and Mark say the same thing. Jesus is speaking. He says, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Mary had no idea the ramifications of her gift of love. And Jesus says, well, whenever the gospel is preached and people get to this particular chapter, this verse, this event, they're going to learn about Mary. And she will be famous because of it. The, the, the whole idea uh, was a surprise, a shock to Mary to hear such things from Jesus. She had no idea and no intention of doing this for fame or notoriety, completely out of her mind. It was, it was kind of like what we, what we found from Caiaphas last time in chapter 11, where he spoke as the high priest prophetically, he said things that were outside of his understanding regarding Jesus dying for the nation. Similarly, Mary had no idea. She, she, she was simply looking to, to uh, ex- express her love and devotion to, to, to Jesus. Um, she, she had no intention of doing anything more than that. But Jesus says, what she has done will be kept for the day of my burial. This idea of the anointing would be held in the minds of the worshipers as the anointing for Jesus' burial after his crucifixion, which was just days away. Mary didn't know that this was going to be a prophetic preparation for Christ. And yet it was. And then Jesus makes this comment, verse 8. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And many people misunderstanding this verse, thinking, well, Jesus is, is, uh, is not concerned about the poor. And just kind of resigning himself, well, you're going to always have poor people around you. Well, that is a true statement. But it wasn't out of, of um, any kind of, of, uh, of uh, pushing aside the poor, discounting the poor, um, urging people not to take care of the poor. For Jesus, this, this is a matter of priority. He said, you are not going to have me, but just for a few more days. Let her alone. Let her come. Let her worship in this way. Now when it comes to, uh, to our worship, um, we are called to give of our best to the Master. As we do, uh, He will instruct us to care for the poor. But our priority is to worship Him. Point number four, regarding the chief priests. Um, Verse nine tells us 
that a large crowd of the Jews came when they, when they learned that Jesus was there. They, they came to him, not for Jesus' sake only, but also that they might see Lazarus. I know it's kind of crass, but we could, we could talk about, uh, about Jesus being the headliner and, and Lazarus being the sideshow. Uh, uh, and as people came for the celebration, Feast of Unleavened, with Passover, as they Jerusalem, they, they heard about this amazing thing Jesus did, and they wanted to see it. They wanted to see Jesus. Those specifically that came from Galilee saw many, 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 many miracles that Jesus had done. This one kind of taught them all. He had raised others that were dead, but he had not raised others that had been dead and buried for four days. Guy's name was Lazarus. Where does he live? In Bethany. We're gone. We're out of here. We're going to go find this guy. And so there were so many that came to, to Bethany. It was, a, it was a, a revolving in and out door as people came into, into the region of, of Jerusalem. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see Lazarus. And many people were believing on Jesus because of Lazarus. So, verse 10, the chief police, priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing on Jesus. You remember that the chief priests were largely um, uh, in control of the Sanhedrin. It was the chief priests and the Pharisees. The chief priests were also uh, known as the Sadducees. They were the political rulers, um, liberal political rulers, who were very comfortable um, being in bed with uh, the Romans, uh, and they were the theological liberals. They believed only in the first five books of, of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. They discounted the supernatural. So, so they, had, they had two problems with Lazarus. A, he was the one who was, was calling people to Jesus uh, and believe on Jesus. And secondly, uh, Lazarus was alive. He was dead, and now he was alive. It's a supernatural event that they didn't believe. So they had to put Jesus to death. They had to put Lazarus to death. And, um, and, and, um, it was it was it was a signed sealed deal. Their um, their 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 theology was proven to be as solid as Swiss cheese. They were embarrassed. Conclusion. I have titled my message as extravagant, normal worship. Mary is our example. She is the one that is pointing us, driving us to be people that give everything that we have to the Master. 
I direct your attention over to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Beginning of this very practical chapter, the conclusion of some marvelous theology. Paul helps us see how our theology is lived out in real life shoe leather. He says this, the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, in light of all that he's written, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God for spiritual service of worship. This is what our worship is. It is the presenting of our bodies as a sacrifice. Now, Paul uses a figure of speech here. We call it a synecdoche. It's, um, it's substituting the part for the whole. So when Paul says, present your bodies, that's, 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 that's the smaller portion. Referring to the larger idea of giving everything I am and everything I have. Including my physical being, but includes my emotional being, my relational being, my volitional being, my choosing, my mental uh, capacity, heart, mind, soul, and strength. When I worship Jesus, I give him all of it. Could I worship Jesus by just engaging my mind? Sure. Just like Mary could could, could have worshipped Jesus by having that, that um, alabaster vase of perfume sitting on her nightstand in her bedroom. But that's not what Mary did. That's not what God calls us to. He doesn't call us to just, just worship on a Sunday morning. He calls us to worship heart, mind, soul, strength all of the time. Everything I have belongs to him. So the hymn writer wrote, Give of your best to the master. Give of the strength of your youth. Throw your soul's fresh glowing ardor into the battle for truth. Jesus set the example. Dauntless was he, young and brave. Give him your loyal devotion. Give him the best that you have. Give of your best to the master. Give him first place in your heart. Give him first place in your service. Consecrate every part. Give and to you will be given. God his beloved son gave. Gratefully seeking to serve him. Give him the best that you have. Give of your best to the master. Not else is worthy his love. He gave himself for your ransom. Gave up his glory above. Laid down his life without murmur. You from sin's ruin to save. Give him your heart's adoration. Give him the best that you have.
every day, all day. I'm called to worship, giving him my very best. In Hebrews 13.5, I am called to, to um, uh, give the, the fruit of our lips. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we are called to uh, offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Just other ways of saying, I give my heart, I give my mind, I give my soul, I give my physical being, and yeah, I give my finances too. I give him everything I have. That is a heart of worship. Properly adorned for our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us to give us this opportunity, this reminder of what you call us to do and call us to be. We are created to be worshipers. Use this picture of our beloved sister Mary as an example, a model, a a motivation to give you our very best continually. Not as a, as a, as a, 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 a trickery means to get something, but as an end in itself, simply to give. So we seek to do for your glory.